Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for this new year. And Lord, with the new year, we know comes new opportunities, new decisions, new directions. And Heavenly Father, we thank You in advance, Lord, for Your awesome and Your abundant provision. And Lord, for that person who is in particular need of health, Lord, a job, their marriage restored. Lord, for that person who needs to experience forgiveness of sin or reconciliation with someone that they're estranged from, Lord, I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You will make whole and well. You will mend and restore. In Jesus' name, Amen. I've still got this little bronchial little cough here. and Thank you for your prayers. This is the longest that it's ever been clinging to me like this. <clears throat> John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. There's few things more arresting than when you get a phone call and the person says, Pastor, this particular person only has a few days to live. They're expected to live for four days, or they're expected to live for three days, or they're at the last moment of their life. It grabs your attention and it creates a sense of urgency. John is counting down the days of Jesus' life. The public ministry of Jesus is drawing to a close. It does so in chapters 11 and 12. And then the private ministry of Jesus to his personal disciples will unfold the rest of the gospel in chapters 13 through 17. There are four days left before the cross of Calvary takes center stage. And the events in verses 20 to 50 make up the last if you will, four days, the fourth day that's left in the life of Jesus. Now, the section begins with a brief visit from some Greeks in verses 20 through 26, and then continues with a voice from God in verses 27 through 36. And the request for this meeting by the Greeks occurs here, only in John's Gospel. And it seems fitting. You see... Many scholars believe that the, the lion's share of the emphasis of Matthew's gospel is to the Jew, to Mark, to the Romans, to Luke, and John, to the Greeks. And so it makes perfect sense that a Greek audience in the world will be the main beneficiaries, if you will, of this gospel. We're left with the distinct impression that their request to see Jesus is either denied or at least limited to the message that we get here. The response of Jesus may seem strange to us. The Lord clearly is preoccupied with several things, but the thing that most fills his heart, most fills his mind, most fills his thinking is his upcoming death. As a matter of fact, Charles Swindoll writes, from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, Jesus presents his last public teaching concentrating on four main themes. First, the cross is imminent, only four days away, verses 23 through 28. Second, the pain is going to be great, that's verse 27. Third, the need is urgent, that's verses 35 and 36. Fourth, the response will be varied. 
Some people will receive Christ. Others will reject him. Unquote. Clearly, what we're going to see is a series of misunderstandings. And by the way, to this day, people misunderstand the glory of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the cause of Jesus. Nothing created a greater stumbling block to both Jew and Gentile than the cross of Christianity. It creates, if you will, a series of paradoxes. Now, a paradox is something that on the surface appears to contradict each other. But when laid side by side, you begin to see how they make sense. And so, the cross, if you will, is the glory of the Messiah in verse 23. The cross brings forth fruit in verse 24. The cross demands death to self in verses 25 and 26. Man must lose his life in order to embrace eternal life. You must cease following yourself if you're going to follow Jesus. The cross, in the end, we discover will judge the world in verse 31. The cross will draw all men unto itself in verses 32 and 33. But the cross will also reveal who the true Messiah is in verses 24 through, through, through 36. Now, some of you have possibly wondered what it would be like to see Jesus in his earthly ministry. Haven't you ever fantasized about something like that? Imagine... You reread verse 20. Now, there were certain geeks. Uh, these are people who work at Circuit City. Not, not, if you work at Circuit City, please take no offense. But imagine our friends at Circuit City create a time machine. There were certain geeks, and they were able to fabricate a machine, and they go back in time, and there you meet Jesus. Do you go to his incarnation? Do you go to the place where he turns water into wine? Do you go to the place where he walks on the water? Do you go to the place where he brings Lazarus back from the dead? In our little illustration, we're transported to this time four days before the death of Jesus. Now, there were certain Greeks, it says, among those who came up to worship at the feast. The New Testament suggests that the person who wants to see Jesus has the ability to, if you want. If you're willing to see Jesus through the lens of the cross, you will see him glorified. You will see him crucified. You will see him multiplied. And so now look in verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. These aren't simply Greek speaking Jews. Greek colonies and Greek colonists had existed in this part of the world for many centuries. As a matter of fact, some 500 years earlier, the historian, the Greek historian Herodotus, made his way from Macedonia through the Hellespont, modern Turkey. He goes down through what's modern Syria, and he comes to the Levant, or what you and I would call Israel, or the Holy Land. Alexander, 200 years after that, would subdue that part of the world. And by the way, in Egypt, Greek tourists literally went through the Nile Delta and scratched their names into temples and monuments hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. People explored foreign territories for a number of reasons, for commerce, for trade, for expansion. But the Greeks are interesting in world history because in a very real sense, they're history's first tourist. In other words, when you ask the Greek, hey, why are you going to Babylon? Why are you going to Egypt? Why are you going to this place or that place? It's because they'll say, I've never been there. They would go for the sheer joy of travel. And the Greeks were perhaps what scholars call God-fearers. These are a group of people who converted to Judaism and would come, and these particular people have come, clearly to observe the Passover, the feast in the temple. Did they convert to Judaism? We're not sure. 
Were they simply people making inquiry to the Lord? We're not completely told, but this is what we are told. Look in verse 21. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Now, of all of Jesus' disciples, a few of them had Greek names. And Philip was one of them. His name in the Greek language means the person who loves horses. And clearly, if you're in an insular society, you're in a place where you want to meet people who are like you, then typically you're going to go to the person who sounds most like you. For me, it's if your name ends with a vowel. You know, hey, there's a guy, his name is Giuseppe. This guy's name is Giovanni. So if I'm wanting an interesting audience, I'm going to go to my paisan. And that's probably what happens here. They thought perhaps it was their best chance for an audience with Jesus. And with respect, look what they say. Sir, we would see Jesus. It's okay for you to ask the question at this point. Why? What would motivate them to seek Jesus? I know if I were to ask you that question... I would probably come up with a different answer. What is it that you're looking for? Why would you want to seek Jesus? For the Greeks, is it because the crowds earlier in the chapter, as Jesus has made his way into the city, they've laid down palm leaves. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is it Greek curiosity? Greeks were known all over the world for their curiosity. They want to know things. As a matter of fact, the Western world and the Western culture was transformed, if you will, not only by Greek language and not only by Greek culture, but by Greek curiosity. Was it because perhaps there was a desire deep in their heart to know the truth? Not simply the truth about Jesus, but the truth about themselves. The truth that was going on deep inside of their heart. Was it because of an inner longing? A hunger for God? The Greeks would become a type, if you will, and a picture of all human beings in their urge to know God, to seek God, the desire to, to ask and answer the question, is there really a God? Can I know this God? By the way, a few decades later, the Apostle Paul would address a group of Greek philosophers on their own turf. In the book of Acts, in the city of Athens, Jesus would, or excuse me, Paul would speak to a group of Stoics and um, the other group, the Epicureans, sorry, just slipped my brain. He's speaking to a group of Stoics and Epicureans, and in the 17th chapter of Acts, he says, And he, that is God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. You know what's interesting about that statement? In Paul's way of thinking, People are located in different places on the earth, not so that they wouldn't know God, but so that they would know God. Has anyone ever said to you, well, what about the people who have never heard of Jesus? What about the people living in aboriginal lands? What about the people who have no clue about Jesus or Greek culture or God? Paul says exactly the opposite. He says, whether you want to believe this or not, each and every person has been placed on the planet Earth in the specific time and the specific boundaries, not so that they wouldn't know God, but so that they would know God. And that he's not far from each and every one. And Paul appeals to creation because no matter where you go on the globe and no matter in what age you live, there is a planet that testifies to the fact that there's a creator. And no matter where you go and no matter what part of the globe that you live on, each and every human being has a conscience that testifies to the fact that there's such a thing as right and wrong and good and evil. So why would anyone want to see Jesus? Why would anyone seek him out? When I was a young man, I would drive down the 15 freeway in Southern California as I was making my way either back and forth in, in, 
in school or work or in, in Northern California, and I would, I would listen to the radio, and my friend Jay Vernon McGee would come on the air, and he would say something like, my friends, young people today keep saying, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. My friends, it all depends on what the question is. And I thought, he's right. It does depend on the question. If your question is, how do I have a right relationship with God? How do I experience forgiveness of sin? How do I experience a reconciliation with God? Jesus is the answer. Why would you want to see Jesus? You know, by every measure, by every human measure, Jesus is the most compelling human being who has ever lived on the planet Earth. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50 years. And most universities will tell you that all of philosophy that follows Plato are just simply human footnotes in history. Socrates teaches for 40 years. Plato teaches for 50 years. Aristotle teaches for 40 years. Do the math. 40 and 40 is 80 plus 50. How much is that? 130 years. How long did Jesus teach? Three years. But if you take the sum and the substance of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and you lay them side by side with Jesus, all of a sudden it begins to shrink both in obscurity and ambiguity. And the life and the teachings of Jesus become paramount. Jesus is the answer to what the soul longs for. Jesus is the answer for the fulfillment of human hopes and the realization of human desires. In what way would you see Jesus? Would you see him as the mystery man? Would you see him as the perfect teacher? Would you see him as the healer? But Jesus insists that you see him glorified, crucified, multiplied. Look in verse 22. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. We're not sure why. Is it possible that Philip goes, I've got this entourage of Greek people who want to see Jesus. What do I do with them? And he brings them to Andrew. Andrew is a part of that inner circle of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John, remember when we come to the first and the second chapters and we see Jesus calling his disciples, we find both John and Andrew as close disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus calls John and Andrew. Andrew, it says, first finds his brother Peter and he brings him to Jesus. Whenever we see Andrew, we see him bringing a child with loaves and fishes, his brother, these Greeks. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. Yeah, what's not to love about that? He has a history of bringing people to Jesus. But again, in verse 23, we have this odd statement. Look what it says. But Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Did Jesus ever see the Greeks? Look again in verse 23. But Jesus answered them. Andrew, Philip, the Greeks. We are not told if Jesus ever met with them or if he in fact did meet with them. Probably the only conversation that took place is the passage that we're reading here in verse 26 and then all the way to, um, to the end of the chapter in verse 50. But if that's the case, again, we're left with the impression that Jesus is saying something entirely different. Look what he says. The answer that Jesus gives minimum to Andrew and Philip, perhaps to the Greeks, is, quote, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So the answer he gives to those who would see him is, you will see me glorified. 
the answer focuses and brings into sharp focus his impending death. Now, remember, remember, the prophet Daniel uses the same description to describe the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Remember the observant Jew, when they hear the name, the Son of Man, what would come to their mind is this description of the Ancient of Days who gives to the Messiah kingdom, glory, dominion. Daniel had received a series of revelations concerning the kingdoms of human beings. Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks, the Romans. The Jews were waiting for the reign of beasts, man's governance to come to an end and and the messianic kingdom to be brought to bear. And there's good reason why he uses that term. The beasts of the kingdom. And we certainly see that even now, even today, even at this very moment, as we cast our gaze on the earth and we see the kingdoms of men growing and expanding and shrinking, contracting and expanding as people seek to subjugate one another for power or territory or security or safety. No wonder there's a misunderstanding. They want to see a coming king. The hour Jesus has in mind is the hour that he would be glorified and it's completely different from what most observant Jews would have understood. He's talking about the hour of his death. The next verse clearly shows that and the whole passage points to it and it creates this shocking contrast between those expecting an earthly ministry, those who are expecting an earthly ministry, how do you give your allegiance to a man who is about to die? One third of the New Testament is devoted to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Half of the gospel is preoccupied with the events leading to and then culminating in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Roy Lauren didn't make a mistake when he said the most important thing in Christ's life was neither his teaching nor his miracles, but his death and his resurrection. And if people ask you, I want to see Jesus, the miracle worker, I want to see Jesus, the amazing teacher. It's okay for you to say, you know, as as miraculous as his miracles were, as amazing as his teachings were, the most important thing about Jesus was his death and his resurrection and the passage gives us a clue when Jesus says the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified that word glorified should be underlined it's the verb glory doxa it's in the aorist tense which may not mean a whole lot to you but what that means is that it refers to a single act and that single act That single event, that single moment points to his death on the cross. Jesus prayed that his father would be glorified. And that glory would be manifest in the supreme sacrifice and the obedience of the cross. It was God's will that Jesus die on the cross for the sins of mankind. That Jesus would obey his father because the father deserves to be honored. The the father deserves to be obeyed. And from Jesus' perspective, he deserves to be glorified. And remember, the substance of that word glory meant weight. It meant the substantive impression that makes things valuable. No wonder Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, would say, You Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet smelling aroma. As a matter of fact, God would be glorified by Christ's act of supreme obedience, but he would also be glorified by this demonstration of love. And now we see something that we should never forget that we should never ignore. One of the things that used to really frustrate me as a kid growing up, particularly before I became a Christian, are the Jesus freaks that would descend upon me. 
the Jesus freaks would come out of nowhere and go, God loves you, dude. Jesus loves you one way. <coughs> and I would say, yeah, yeah, right. No, no, really, dude. Jesus loves you. Finally, I got so frustrated hearing that, I, I confronted the person and I said, how do you know? How do you know? And he goes, because, dude, I believe in a cosmic being who, like, is the envelope, the essence of love, the cosmic expression of love. And I said, so? Your opinion is no better than anybody else's opinion. And so from then on, when Jesus freaks would approach me, hey, God loves you, I would say, how do you know? And nobody seemed to have the right answer. Until one day, a person quoted to me Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now I was in trouble. The reason why the invisible God, the invisible God becomes visible in his display his manifestation of endearment and love because in time and space a real Jesus dies for you and I want you to just consider for just a moment that if there's one ounce if there is one portion if there is one molecule if there is one atom if there is one element in the heart of God that loves, it loves you. He loves you. <clears throat> and now we see it. That in death, Jesus is glorified. He is crucified. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly, you remember what that expression means. It's verily, verily, or truly, truly. It means what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. Unless a, gr a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus uses a metaphor of wheat falling to the ground. It's going to be familiar to everyone. The seed is covered. It remains alone. <clears throat> but in the end, it reproduces. The idea is that the grain of wheat in the ancient world, in this particular instance, it's called kokos. It's a farming and, and gardening principle that everyone in the ancient world would have understood. As a matter of fact, when Jesus said these words for 2,000 years in the Nile Valley, farmers would come when the Nile would overflow its banks and the mud would manifest itself and they would literally stomp on the mud and they would throw seed into the ground and they would cover the ground and it would create this incredible harvest. The grain of wheat repeats the law of its own being by undergoing the process of death and burial and reproduction. That's the principle. It's sown in the ground. It has a life principle. And in that life principle, it is able to reproduce even in the ground. And so now all of a sudden we understand something. It creates a picture of death and burial and life. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Without death, there is no life. Without a cross, there is no crown. Without loss, there is no gain. The picture becomes the fulfillment of the paradox. We must be willing to go down in order to go up. And at the very, very heart of the gospel lies the cross. It was no accident that caused Paul to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I brought to you what I received. This is something very important, that Christ died for our sins as the Bible said he would. He was buried. He rose on the third day, just like the Bible said he would. Clearly, the world has many religions, but it only has one gospel. There is only one gospel. There is only one message 
that human beings can have a right relationship with God in Christ. There is only one gospel that says you can experience forgiveness with God and reconciliation to God through Christ. Darwin's theory of evolution provided the basis for the concept of the survival of the fittest. But it is the glory of the gospel and it is the cross of Christ that transforms the unfit. The person who is empty. The person who is lonely. The person who is broken. The person who is wicked. You know, the story is told of a very famous artist who was painting his his great work of art. It was a picture of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And he had a, a young lady modeling for her, for him. She was a young gypsy girl. And he brought her into the studio and she saw this picture of Jesus on the cross. And she said to the artist, was he a very bad man? And the artist said, of, of course not. He wasn't a very bad man. Quite the contrary, he was a very good man. And she said, then why did he die on the cross? And he said, so bad men could become good men. And then she asked the artist this question. Did he die for you? Oddly enough, he'd never been asked that question. Did he die for you? And now, all of a sudden, the world began to collapse in and around him as he, as he personally came to grips with the meaning of the cross. The world is fascinated by a Jesus, but they continue to hate the cross. Matt, Andrew Murray said, the cross of Christ doesn't make God love us. It is the outcome and the measure of his love. And the world continues to be fascinated with Jesus. But they continue to hate the cross. As a matter of fact, Paul would later write to the Philippians, For many walk of whom I have told you, and now even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Jesus, the teacher, they were more than willing to embrace. Jesus, the healer, they were more than willing to embrace. But Jesus, the Savior, who dies for sins, was something that created constant animosity in the ancient world. Look what Jesus says at the end of verse 24. But if it dies, it produces much grain. We would see Jesus glorified. We would see Jesus crucified. We would see Jesus multiplied. Now think for just a moment, the Greeks will eventually become a part of this great harvest that we call Christianity. It could very well be that our Savior, whose mind is completely preoccupied with the imminence of his death, with the presentation of the Greeks, a door is opened and a crack is given and Jesus sees a harvest. Because within the seed appeared the miracle power to produce and perpetuate life. You understand that within a single kernel of corn lies the ability to produce thousands of seeds within months. A dot-sized poppy seed can reproduce itself 10,000 times in a single summer. You see, every plant is programmed to reproduce itself. And now we understand something in the book of Acts where Jesus dies and he rises from the dead and the gospel begins to spread. And as the gospel begins to spread, the first real missionary work was done in Antioch among the Greek speaking individuals. Yes, Paul goes to the synagogues and to the Jews. But after that, here's where we see Paul. In the Greek city of Antioch, in the Greek cities of Pergamum and Thyatira, in the Greek city of Philippi, in the Greek city of Athens, in the Greek city of Corinth. You know what's interesting? Do you remember when you were a kid? Some of you, that's ancient history. Some of you, it's not that long ago. 
But do you remember when you went to school and you did your first experiment with a seed? Didn't it look just like a little dead piece of wood? And do you remember how your teacher told you that if you put it in that cup and if you watered it, it would come to life? Scientists have discovered seeds sealed in Egyptian tombs that are 4,000 years old. But you bring them out of the tomb and you plant them in the dirt and you add life-giving water and a seeming miracle seems to take place. And that's how I see you. You may look like little lifeless clumps of organic matter sitting in my chairs. But I plan to cover you all with dirt and give you life-giving water. Because I would see Jesus glorified and I would see Jesus crucified and I would see Jesus multiplied because guess what? The multiplication begins to take place as the manifestation of His love and His mercy and His grace and His redemption is made known in your heart. He saves you. He washes you. He cleanses you. He forgives you and He restores you. He brought you back to life. And then comes the paradox. Read it for yourself in verse 25. It says, He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. As tragic as it is to get a phone call when a person says he only has four days to live, there's an even greater tragedy that I hear sometimes. It's when the person calls me and says, Pastor, I hate my life. I hate it. I hate it so much that I can't stand living one more moment. At that point, I say, Hallelujah. What? What are you saying? Well, here the Bible says, He who who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Perhaps you've come to the place in your life where you're willing to consider yourself dead so that you can live for Jesus, so that you can love Jesus, so that you can have a right relationship with Christ. Jesus speaks the paradox. Do you know what he's saying in that verse, in verse 25? He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will gain it for eternal life. He's reiterating the paradox that death is the way to life. And the old has to go away in order for the new to take place. What does that mean? Death is the way to to life Jesus reminds us that death with death comes life and Paul reiterates it in the New Testament when he talks about losing yourself and finding yourself and dying to self William Barclay writes the grain of wheat was ineffective and unfruitful so long as it was preserved as it were in safety and security it was It was when it was thrown into the cold vault, the dark ground, buried there as if in a tomb that it bears fruit. It was by the death of the martyrs that the church grew in that famous phrase, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. And now all of a sudden in the first century with the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the life of Jesus manifested in the early church, guess what? they began to reproduce because they began to live a life of glory and sacrifice and selflessness and even death. The moment that you're prepared to die, the moment that you are prepared to die becomes the moment that you're prepared to live. That's the idea. Paul interprets it to mean you die to yourself. 
We die to selfish ambition and selfish concerns. We become committed to Christ. There is only one way to keep your life. The only way that you can keep it is to give it away. And so the person who chooses to keep his life, the, the woman who chooses to keep her life, is motivated by one of two things, selfishness or the desire for security. And think about it, that lumps every single person who refuses to come to a right relationship with God in Christ. Why won't you do it? Because you want to keep your life for yourself. We want to hold on to what we think belongs to us. But over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus insists that the person who hoards their life loses their life. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. That's what the Bible means when it says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Paul speaks of being unknown yet well known in 2 Corinthians 6, 9. Of dying yet possessing life in 2 Corinthians 6, 9. Of dying yet being able to give life here in verse 24. Of being poor but making people rich in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Of having nothing but possessing everything in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul speaks of hearing words that can't be expressed in 2 Corinthians 12, 4. Of being strong when he is weak, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Of knowing the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. Of seeing that which is unseen in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. What? The way up is the way down. The way to get is to not have. The way to see is to not see. The way to embrace everything is when you have all things in Christ. And there's the principle in verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also, will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. We see Jesus. Glorified, crucified, multiplied. Why? To serve Him, to follow Him, to honor Him. Think carefully. Sacrifice becomes reproduction. Service becomes greatness. Selflessness becomes honor. Servanthood brings safety. And the disciple not only sees Jesus... But the disciple remains with Jesus. Look what it says again in verse 26. If anyone serves me. Remember, this is a king who's about to die. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. We've already asked and answered the question, Jesus, where are you going? Here. I'll be arrested. I'll be tortured. I will be killed. And I will come back to life. Tell me again where you're going. To a cross. Tell me again what's going to happen. Death. And then what's going to happen? A resurrection. You see, if you follow Him in death, you also follow Him in resurrection. And then you come to the place where you will always be with Him if anyone... Look what it says. And where I am... There my servant will be also. We want to see you, Jesus. We want to see you. And I want to see you. But in order to see Jesus, you must see him glorified, crucified, multiplied. And with that, not only do you see Jesus, but now the disciple remains with Jesus. And that's the paradox. The paradox now becomes the principle. John Phillips used to say that it's possible to have a saved soul and a lost life. Is that a description of your circumstances? You have a saved soul, but a lost 
life. John Phillips writes, millions have been saved but have never served. At the judgment seat of Christ, those who have served will be honored. The honored will be those who have died martyrs' deaths, those who have forsaken houses and lands, those who have forsaken loved ones, forsaken friends, forsaken home, forsaken business to serve Him in far-off places living with godless tribes, translating the Bible into foreign tongues, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, blazing new trails, winning souls, planting churches, building hospitals. The honored will be those who have gone forth weeping, bearing precious seed. They'll be honored by the Father. Is that a description of your life? A saved soul, but a lost life. You know, it was this passage of Scripture that prompted Jim Elliott to write, and some of you are familiar with him. He died among tribal groups in South America in 1956. It was popularized in a film called End of the Spear. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is the wise person who gives his life for Christ. Many human beings see glorious conquest or power or the right to rule. And now Jesus sees glorious humility, submission to his Father, and the right to serve. Again, Barclay writes, He taught men that only by death comes life. That only by spending life do we retain it. And that only by service comes greatness. And the extraordinary thing is that when we come to think of it, Christ's paradox is nothing other than the truth of common sense. And here's what we see. We see Jesus glorified. We see Jesus crucified. We see Jesus multiplied. And then we see Jesus in the most amazing of places. In the person sitting next to you. In their life, in their heart, in their circumstances. We see Jesus in order to become like Jesus. Now, I want you to think of the paradox of even his life in the Gospel of John. He feeds He's hungry, but he feeds the crowds. He thirsts, but he's the water of life. He's weary, but he is our rest. He pays tribute, yet he's the king of kings. Jesus prays, but he hears our prayer. He weeps, but he dries our tears. He's sold for 30 pieces of silver, but redeems the world. He's led like a sheep to the slaughter. He never ceases to be anything other than the great shepherd. And then he's put to death. He dies. So that you can live forever. Even the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, The wise man does not expose himself needlessly to danger since there are few things for which he cares sufficiently, but he is willing in great crisis to give even his life knowing that under certain conditions it is not worthwhile to live. Isn't that interesting? Aristotle said that 300 years before the death of Jesus, there are certain conditions where it's not worthwhile to live. What are those conditions? Bondage? Slavery? Oppression? Under the enormous weight of guilt? So Jesus dies. So you don't have to. Ben Johnson said, Bad men excuse their faults. Good men will leave them. There comes a time when you must abandon your willingness to simply see a Jesus 
who will teach you a good proverb or will heal you in a miraculous fashion. We thank God for His teaching. We thank God for His miracles. But the main reason why Jesus came was to live so that you could live, to die so that you need not die, and to live forever so that you could live forever. Someone once wrote, I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while He counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store, but He sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as He counted the hours on my knees. And I never knew till one day at a grave how vain are these things that spend life to save. The grave puts things in perspective of what it means to live your life. I found one more stanza, by the way. I did not yet know until my loved one went above. The richest is he who is rich in God's love. And that's exactly what you see when you see Jesus glorified. When you see Jesus crucified. When you see Jesus multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who's wondering what to do with their life, how to spend their life, how to live their life. Lord, I pray that they would come to grips this year, that you begin to live life by abandoning it, and that you fully and finally embrace life when you discover that it's a life lived for the glory of God in humility to the Father, in submission to His plan. And Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who hates their life so much that they dread waking up in the morning, that they dread going to bed at night, because all it brings is one more day of sadness and unfulfillment. Lord, I pray that they would wake up and see you glorified, see you crucified, see you multiplied, that they would follow you and serve you and honor you and begin to experience what it means to live a life of selflessness and sacrifice, of honor and glory, yes, glory. In Jesus' name.